2: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
1: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
2: And today we're discussing The Cannonball Run, released June 19th, 1981. It was written by Brock Yates, directed by Hal Needham, produced by Golden Harvest, and released by 20th Century Fox. This is episode 250, guys.
1: What? Oh. This is our
2: 250th episode of the podcast. We're a
1: quarter of the way done.
2: We're a quarter of the way to warranting our four digit episode numbers. <laughs> On May 3rd, 1971, auto racer and car and driver contributor Brock Yates began a cross country speed run with his son, Brock Yates Jr., car and driver editor Steve Smith, and friend Jim Williams in a 1971 Dodge sportsman van nicknamed Moon Trash 2. <laughs> The journey was a celebration of the American interstate highway system, but also a protest of newly introduced traffic laws like nationwide speed limits. The trek became the first of five official cannonball runs. The next four runs obviously involved multiple cars because it evolved into a race. The Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash, in full, abbreviated by most to the Cannonball Baker or the Cannonball Run, named after Irwin Cannonball Baker, who set a 1933 cross country record of 53 hours and 30 minutes?
3: Wait, what year was that?
2: 1933. 1933?
3: Yeah. That's impressive to For be then, able to yeah. do that without the interstates. Yeah. It's, That's it's amazing.
2: Pretty amazing that it barely took him over two days. No speed limits, though, back then. Right.
3: Yeah, but also how good were the cars in 1933? Like how fast could they go? I feel like they'd probably max out at a lower level. You also
2: have to be careful about running out of gas where there's like not even gas gas stations yet. yet. (laughs) The path ran from New York City or Darien, Connecticut based on which cannonball it was on the East Coast to the Portofino Inn in Los Angeles on the West Coast. And there were no other rules, not even a rule that you couldn't put the car on a plane and fly it the whole distance, though it was generally agreed upon that the vehicle should be driven the full distance. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. The second run was completed in 35 hours and 54 minutes at an average speed of 80 miles an hour, incurring only one speeding ticket. In the film, they cite a record of 32 hours and 51 minutes, which was the winning time of the final official run in 1979, but as of October 2021, the fastest run was completed in 25 hours and 39 what? minutes.
3: How? Wow. Wow.
2: At an average speed of 110 miles per hour.
3: How are you averaging that fast?
2: By going 200 in the desert. Oh, Jesus. In all the runs, there has only been one serious accident, wherein an all-female team competing in a Cadillac stretch limousine fell asleep at the wheel and veered off the road, rolling the vehicle. It resulted in one broken arm but no fatalities, though the passengers were thoroughly soaked by the gross green chemicals from the toilet on board the limo. Oh, oh.
3: <laughs> I was going to say, what's the what's the advantage of having a crazy car like that? And you've answered it, right. having a toilet. <laughs> yeah,
2: having a toilet and, and having room to move around.
3: A place to sleep while in between shifts.
2: Right, and that car became the basis for the two-girl driving team in the film. Hmm. The last official cannonball race took place in April of 1979, and Yates drove the same ambulance used in the film. His co-driver was Cannonball Run director Hal Needham. They were transporting a nurse, played by Yates's wife, and a doctor, played by an actual radiologist friend. The ambulance was souped up with a Hemi engine and managed a top speed of 145 miles per hour. Wow. They didn't finish the race after blowing the transmission 50 miles from the finish line, oh. and the ambulance went straight into storage until the film began production.
3: That sucks. Mm. But that's really awesome that they actually used the real vehicle. That's yeah. amazing.
2: And it's basically... Their, their run in 79 went very similar to how the run goes in the movie.
3: That's so funny. In
2: 1973, director John G. Avildsen and writer Eugene Price made plans for a film based on the race, but it never came to fruition. Yates began working on his own screenplay centered on the cannonball run, but was beaten to the punch by two unofficial stories in 1976. The first was Roger Corman produced Cannonball! exclamation mark about a cross-country race in the opposite direction from L.A. to New York. In fact, Roger Corman had already essentially beaten him to the punch twice because the year before Cannonball, he produced Death Race 2000 with a very similar, though futuristic, plot. A no-holds-barred cross-country race from New New York to New Los Angeles, with extra points awarded for each vehicular homicide committed along the way. Both Death Race 2000 and Cannonball were directed by Paul Bartel, and both films starred David Carradine, Sylvester Stallone, Mary Warrenoff, and Dick Miller. Corman even shows up in Cannonball, as the Los Angeles DA looking to bring the roadrunners to justice. The second 1976 Cannonball precursor was the Gumball Rally, starring Michael Sarazin, Raul Julia, and Gary Busey. The Gumball Run, originally a simple parody of the Cannonball Run, eventually became its own real-world race. The Gumball finish line is the Queen Mary in Long Beach.
3: Hmm. But it starts somewhere, presumably, on the East Coast, in New yeah. York.
2: Yep. Yates' first draft was called Coast to Coast, but 1980 obviously saw the release of an unrelated film by that name, and Yates' script was later renamed The Cannonball Trophy, Cannonball with no exclamation mark, and finally, the obvious choice, The Cannonball Run. Yates had hoped for Steve McQueen to play the lead role, but he obviously fell ill and passed away before production began. Burt Reynolds was quickly attached in his place, despite a scheduling conflict with his contracted role in Paramount Pictures' paternity the same year.
3: I think I like this better. Like I know that Steve McQueen is known for driving cars, yeah. But like, I enjoy this as a funny movie, and Steve McQueen's version is not funny. No, it's not
2: funny, and it would have been tragically similar to Cannonball and the Gumball Rally, which yeah. I watched both of today. Oh my god! And they're both <laughs> generally straightforward, like action race movies. Yeah.
3: No, this this needed something else, and and it has that in the humor.
2: Yeah. Paramount threatened to sue until Golden Harvest and 20th Century Fox agreed to pause production briefly to give Burt Reynolds a weekend for reshoots on Paramount's rough cut, namely the alternate ending on The Boat. Hmm. Director Needham took advantage of the break by finishing editing on Smokey and the Bandit 2, which, as we mentioned in our review of that episode, shot back-to-back with Cannonball, and also starred Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Terry Bradshaw, and the same ambulance. Reynolds would go on to star in Paternity once Cannonball had completely wrapped, but if you have a comedy about driving illegally across state lines for a prize, Burt Reynolds seems like the obvious yeah. choice, yeah. especially if you're going to make a funny one. During the production, 24-year-old stunt woman Heidi von Beltz was injured in a crash on set that left her quadriplegic. She was a world-class skier with no stunt driving experience and a last-minute replacement for a stunt woman who left due to a family illness. Von Beltz was invited to set by stunt coordinator Bobby Bass, her then-fiance, for what he assured her was a piece of cake stunt. This particular stunt called for her to operate a smoke machine from the passenger seat. The car, an Aston Martin, had defective steering, clutch, and speedometer, and was not outfitted with seat belts. and was struck by a stunt van that missed a cue. Von Belts was eventually awarded $5.8 million in the form of a workers' compensation payout.
3: Wow, that is tragic.
2: After the film, the ambulance was gifted to a church's charity auction and made them a bundle.
3: But so presumably, so she was in the passenger seat. What happened right. to the driver?
2: The driver was okay, but she was injured. The, the van missed a cue and ended up hitting the side of the car Hit the she passenger was side. Right.
3: That makes more sense. Okay, yeah.
2: The film was followed by two sequels, Cannonball Run 2 in 1984 and Speed Zone, or Cannonball Fever, in 1989, which is only connected to the first two films by a cameo from Jamie Farr's chic character. More recently, the Cannonball Run name was licensed to a reality TV series in 2001. Yates owned and operated the Cannonball Run Pub in Wyoming, New York, and hosted annual reunions with former drivers from the official events.
3: So did the TV show actually just recreate it? Like, a season was just them driving across country for 36 hours? Yeah,
2: so the official Cannonball Runs, like I said, there were only the five in the 70s. Yeah. Since then, other people do the same path or the same challenge, basically following the same rules, leaving from the same place and arriving at the same place. But it's not an official Cannonball Run, but... So they had a TV show where they just had teams do it. Yeah,
3: I just feel like, how do you do a TV show where you're actively breaking the law?
2: Yeah, Yeah. that seems ridiculous. (laughs) It doesn't sound like it lasted very long, though. Game designer Yu Suzuki cited the Cannonball Run as inspiration for his popular arcade racing game, OutRun. Warner Brothers holds the remake rights, and in 2016 they commissioned Ethan Cohen to write and direct a remake. That project seems to have fizzled, but more recently, in 2018, Doug Lyman was attached as director to a remake written by Thomas Lennon and Robert Ben Garant, who I love yeah. dearly. Yeah, I think that'd be great. At the start of the film, the 20th Century Fox logo stutters a bit and is interrupted by a police chase. An animated race car is pursued by police, colliding with the logo's searchlights and destroying the logo. The skit is punctuated with Burt Reynolds' signature laugh. <laughs> We saw almost the same gag at the top of Smokey and the Bandit 2 last season when Bandit's car is chased around the Universal logo by a squad car and a crash is heard when they both disappear behind the earth, followed by Reynolds' laugh. (laughs) Fox was not totally keen on their logo getting destroyed at the start, but it tested well, even though audiences had just seen the same joke less than a year earlier. We open picture on a black 1980 Lamborghini Countach LP400S rolling through the desert under an insane list of names. This particular car was loaned by Ron Rice, founder and owner of Hawaiian Tropic Suntan Lotion, who served as a sponsor to the film.
3: I don't feel like I would have known that. Like, It's not like they have any product placement. Yeah, no, yeah.
2: nothing at all. This film is a spiritual sequel to It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, with bit parts for everyone that Hal Needham could get on the phone. The Lambo stops beside a 55-mile-per-hour speed limit sign, and a girl in a sparkly jumpsuit hops out and spray paints a big X over the face of it
1: see i thought she was gonna spray like a one
2: yeah that's what they do in the second movie they literally Uh. put 155 over the top of the sign right in the first shot caught in the act the girl hops back in the lambo and it races away ahead of an approaching police car with sirens blaring the lambo pulls off the road and then after the cops blow by they rush to catch up and then blow past the police again while they radio dispatch
3: there's a lot of shots in this sequence where they're obviously speeding up the film to make right. it look like they're going faster. But I question some of the logic here because, like, first of all, they, they are also filming where you could see like bushes, like, really close to camera. They're mm. like just Shaking wavering yeah. really quickly. Like, and I'm like, you guys could have just avoided that. Like, yeah. Just shoot where there's no plants. But also, you. You should probably have just shot it so that you weren't speeding up the cop car but you were speeding up this car because you speed up both up and it's less impressive
2: <laughs> yeah they're not outrunning by as much we cut to victor Prinzy or prinzum depending on where you look because imdb puts an m at the end of his last name but his last name isn't in the credits mm. so i have no idea but he's named after someone named victor prinzi so it's either they changed the name for legal reasons or his name is Prinzy in the film and IMDb just put an extra letter in it. But he's played by Dom DeLuise, arriving at a garage where J.J. McClure, as played by Burt Reynolds, is working on a car. A sign outside reads, J.J. McClure's Land, Sea, Air, We Deliver. So apparently he's a business owner. When J.J. calls to Victor, he surprises him, and Victor tosses a mug of coffee in the air. He apologizes for showing up two hours late.
0: I'm really sorry I'm late, but one of my hamsters had an anxiety attack. I couldn't leave him until he was settled down. He was acting so crazy.
2: JJ invites Vic to imagine the race as a row of hamsters on a treadmill just trying to get as fast as possible. Vic wishes they could share the victory with his pets.
0: Wouldn't it be great if we could share the glory of winning the cannonball with them? <gasps> that would be a real team it wouldn't it? I mean, you, me, the hamsters, and him. <laughs>
2: J.J. seems upset by the word him and bangs his head on the open hood of the car to a cartoon sound effect, setting a tone for the film. We cut across town to a betting office where Jimmy the Greek Snyder, as himself, stands before a huge billboard of the odds on the upcoming Cannonball Run. A man named Fenderbomb, played by Sammy Davis Jr., approaches the desk to place a bet. The Greek thinks Fenderbomb is out of his depths.
0: you want to talk or do you want to bet?
2: We cut back to JJ and Victor speeding down the road in a 1969 Porsche 911 when they happen upon a police roadblock and swerve around it at the last second, totaling their car. When one of the cops approaches to ask who they think they are, Victor has suddenly transformed into a superhero with a mask and cape. This is the him that they mentioned earlier, Victor's superhero alter ego.
3: Do we know that this is the hymn at this point?
2: No. No.
3: Okay, because I swear I spent a good three quarters of this movie like thinking, I'm like, are they talking about God? Like, what? who is this, like, a, <laughs> a capital H hymn? Like, who is this guy?
2: <laughs> well, Captain Chaos is also a capital H hymn. Back at the betting office, Fenderbomb puts enough on the line to win a million-dollar grand prize if they win the race. He turns to introduce his partner, Jamie Blake, as played by Dean Martin. They intend to enter the race and have apparently bet on themselves to win. Fenderbaum is confident in their chances as he waves around a bejeweled Star of David necklace, insisting God is their co-pilot. But Jamie slaps him around a bit because they don't have a third seat in the car for God.
0: Remember our car? Yeah. Two seats? Two seats. Where's he gonna sit? Where?
2: We cut to JJ and Victor flying a single-engine plane, trying to decide how to rig the system with a car the police won't stop. They consider a limo with diplomatic plates, which was actually attempted, a bloodmobile, and an ice cream truck.
1: I feel like the bloodmobile is very close to the ambulance. Yeah, it they'll is. they'll eventually get to.
2: When they run out of beer, J.J. takes the plane down to the main street of a small town and sends Victor into a shop for more Budweiser. As the plane spins in the street, the backwash of the props blast into the store behind Victor, but neither he nor the cashier seem to notice.
1: Was Budweiser a sponsor for this film? Because there's, quite a, bit of that. there's <laughs> a lot of that.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we had... Uh, was Budweiser the sponsor in Smokey and the Bandit 2 earlier this year? Because it was Coors in the first one and they switched right. beer companies between them. So, Outside in the plane, J.J. briefly considers a black Trans Am, the iconic car of his Bandit character in Hal Needham's other franchise.
0: You could get a black Trans Am. No, that's been done.
2: Though we will see a black Trans Am later in the film, seemingly driven by a Bandit doppelganger because the guy driving it is wearing the same jacket from the Bandit movies. The plane frightens pedestrians out of the street on its way back into the sky, and we cut to a backyard pool of a large house. Seymour Goldfarb, played by Roger Moore, joins his mother on the patio for a quick tea. Mother tells Seymour how disappointed she is that the heir to the Goldfarb girdle's fortune is running around pretending to be Roger Moore. In the original script, Seymour was pretending to be James Bond, but Moore had promised the Broccoli family that he wouldn't do anything that cheapened the Bond name. (laughs) (laughs)
3: loophole yeah Yeah. so it
2: was rewritten that he's pretending to be roger moore but for the rest of the film he's clearly pretending to be a spy and not an actor
3: yeah
1: i just at at one point it says you're just playing yourself yeah you are just roger moore yeah
3: but i feel like i also immediately forgot this scene and i'm like he's just he is just himself right yeah like I i thought he was just being himself throughout the rest of this movie i forgot it was a fake roger moore
2: the fact that he was willing to play this part in the middle of his Bond career is exactly why I have always loved Roger Moore because he has, like, the best sense of humor out of mm-hmm, all the guys yeah. who have taken that part.
1: Well, in this scene, he also references that... Or, I don't know if it was this scene, but he also references that he was on a, a franchise... Uh, oh, franchi- that's... T- yeah, that's TV later. Western. Yeah. I was like, yeah.
2: His mother confronts him with a gun, specifically a Walther PP, that the maid found under his pillow, and he immediately points it in her face. We get a little Bond-like score for the moment. I can't tell if it's a sound-alike. It seems like some of the notes are a little different, just enough for it to be legal.
0: What is the meaning of this? The meaning, Mother dear, is a quick death. I warned you not to interfere in my affairs.
2: She thinks he's joking around, but he pulls the trigger in her face and a bang flag unfurls from the gun. At the end of the scene, amused with himself, he notes out loud that his mother is too Jewish to be Roger Moore's mother. We cut back to JJ and Victor, They are now racing a scarab speedboat called Belly Dancer across a lake. Victor complains that he's going too fast and eventually JJ crashes the boat into the side of a huge pontoon boat and we hard cut to an ambulance slicing through traffic with its lights blaring. JJ's in a neck brace and Victor has a bandage around his right index finger.
0: It only hurts when I point.
3: (laughs) It looks like a cast though that keeps his finger in a pointed position. Right, but it's
2: also like twice as long as his finger for some reason. (laughs) I'm not sure if this was like a tv edit version of the movie but when they ask the emt played by director hal needham how long it will take to get to the hospital he brags you can smoke through traffic like shot through a gun in this thing but his lips are clearly saying you can smoke through traffic like shit through a goose in this thing it occurs to jj and victor simultaneously that this is the solution to the race and bert's laugh sounds a lot like the one over the logo to me <laughs> no! We cut to the set of a Japanese television show. The camera starts inside a 1980 four-wheel drive Subaru full of complex computer equipment and monitors and slowly pulls out through the open hatchback. The guests of the show are Jackie Chan, his co-driver for the Cannonball Run, and an actress from a Godzilla movie. The host speaks to Jackie in Japanese, and he responds in Cantonese because Jackie Chan is from Hong Kong, not Japan. And he was very pissed off that the film implies his character is Japanese, despite speaking Cantonese the whole time.
3: Is it like nobody knew that was happening, or they just didn't care? They just didn't
2: care, because the point of the car was supposed to be, Japan has futuristic technology, so he's a Japanese person. Yeah. And he didn't care for that much. Jackie's partner takes a girl from the stage to give her a tour of the car, and Jackie is clearly nervous about it. Inside the car, he flips random switches until Jackie starts shouting at him, and the girl flips a final switch to launch the car backward through a wall of the studio. We cut to two men in turbans and sunglasses riding camels with huge rifles and fully loaded crisscrossing bandoliers. One tries to bum a cigarette off the other.
0: Camel! Aren't the camel schmuck? Winston! Ah.
2: We see a 1976 Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow 1 bouncing down a desert road toward camera, and it parks outside the gate of a home. The Sheik exits the vehicle, played by Jamie Farr, in a generic Arab costume. He sits at a table with his sister, played by Bianca Jagger. Farr is at least half Lebanese, but Jagger is Nicaraguan, so it's a strange <laughs> casting choice. The Sheik assures his sister that he will win the race, and we cut to the next competitor. Burt Convy as Bradford Compton, in a three-piece suit and tie with a glass of champagne, dictates his schedule to a secretary in the back of a plane. He asks her to locate a friend named Shaky Finch. On behalf of his company's board, an assistant advises Compton against the stunt he's about to perform, but Compton puts on a helmet and rides a motorcycle out of the back of the plane. On the way down, he sings I've Gotta Be Me, originally by co-star Sammy Davis Jr. A crowd below applauds the opening of a chute and safe landing, complete with smoke trail shoes. A wife in the audience is less impressed.
0: That is the dumbest thing I've seen since that dimwit tried to jump the Grand Canyon
2: referring of course to evil knievel we cut to the parking lot of the lock stock and barrel restaurant starting line of the real life races in darien connecticut above the parking lot marquee a sign reads the cannonball pub but as far as i can tell lock stock was in darien connecticut and the cannonball pub was in wyoming new york so i'm not clear which location this is if it is one of the real locations a pair of competitors terry and mel played by terry bradshaw and mel tillis in a red chevy chevelle laguna s3 with a hawaiian tropic decal on the hood are being followed by a police car. They pull around the back of the motel expecting to hide, but their hood pops up blinding them and they crash the car into the hotel pool. They seem pleased with this turn of events as the cop drives right by the pool without noticing the car.
0: That's better than hiding, that's better than hiding that back. I know, but the only problem we got now is we have to go and retune it,
2: all right? We cut to a meeting of the Friends of Nature and outside an enormous Hawaiian Tropic mural is visible across the street. Just outside the window, Terry and Mel can be seen working on their recently drowned car.
3: Okay, so there was an instance of product placement.
2: There were two. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were joking when you said. No, you didn't I see really it didn't that. notice yeah. no, it. <laughs> Cuz especially when the the first shot of the meeting, the the whole window is just filled with the words Hawaiian tropics. So I thought uh, you're being sarcastic.
3: No, I wasn't.
2: <laughs> Among the audience of this meeting is Farah Fawcett as photographer Pamela. The man sitting beside her is Arthur J. Foyt, the guest of honor for this event. He's intimidated by her attractiveness and asks if she's here to see him, but she says she just likes trees. In particular, she claims to enjoy fucking under them. Foyt is invited to speak, and has some predictable microphone trouble.
3: Yeah, sorry, just the line that she says here... I feel like you could take it both ways because when you say blow your brains out. She says
2: ball Ball. your brains out.
3: Oh, I heard blow and I was just like...
2: It's a very common mishearing of this line from what I understand. (laughs) A lot of people are like, why did she joke about suicide in that one scene?
3: And I was like, I mean, I guess you could think of it as like you know, like, you know, blowing him, but like really hard that his brain explodes. I don't know, but yeah, that's no. a weird choice. But with the <laughs>
2: subtitles on is how I have to watch everything. And uh, she says, ball your brains out.
3: Okay, that makes more sense.
1: Oh, that you can lie under them on a moonlit night with the breeze blowing. Ball your brains out.
2: Floyd is invited to speak and has some predictable microphone trouble. As in Ghostbusters later in the decade, the environmentalists are the villains of this story. Foyt here hates the pollution that cars cause, but he can barely be heard over the rumbling of Terry and Mel's engine outside. Eventually, the car backfires, and the window behind Foyt explodes into the room, frightening the friends of nature. We cut to another team, Batman and Mad Dog, in a GMC C35 Sierra Classic pickup, with no brakes apparently. They blast through the front doors of the hotel, and knock Foyt onto one of the lobby couches. JJ sneaks in wearing his paramedic gear, He asks Mad Dog if he thinks he's the president or something, a reference I did not understand, when Mad Dog launches into a Nixon impersonation.
0: Let me make one thing perfectly clear. We feel terrible about it, and if they can't take a joke.
2: The fake paramedics are ushered toward the unconscious man on the couch in the lobby, and after some hemming and hawing about being off the clock right now, JJ agrees to revive the man using a bottle of seltzer water to spray the man's face and crotch, and voila, he lives.
0: Just uh, give him a couple of enemas and call me in the morning.
2: The sheik skids into the parking lot. His passengers rush out of the car to throw up, terrified by his driving, but he blames their diets. Ah, too much Inside the hotel, Foyt limps up the stairs with Pamela, complaining about the Hells Angels in the truck that almost killed him in the lobby. Hells Angels, of course, being a famous motorcycle club not especially known for their trucks. <laughs> Foyt crawls through the hotel bar to eavesdrop on people, He overhears J.J. and Victor discussing the cannonball run. They need a doctor for the ambulance, and Victor mentions that his shrink was recently committed and doesn't like talking to him.
0: He gets very upset when he talks to him. So do I.
2: J.J. and Victor notice the lady team, Jill and Marcy, across the bar and approach them about playing their patient, since they obviously can't be doctors, they're women. A woman steps on Foyt's hand in high heels and he returns to his table wounded. The girls explain that they are also competitors in their own car, and so they can't help the ambulance team. As for the winning
0: vehicle, well, we'll just have to wait and see. You haven't seen our equipment.
2: And JJ does a quick Donald Duck impression. Equipment.
3: Equipment. I feel like they missed an opportunity for a better line here. I mean, I guess they wanted to go for the the funny line of saying like, oh, you haven't seen our equipment, but when he offers to let them be in the winning car, like, they should be like, we will be, you know? And they yeah. should get excited and be like, yeah, but but we're going to be driving it. It's our car, you know? Yeah,
2: it's, it's already, we already have it. It's parked downstairs. Now JJ notices Pamela at the bar and tries to guess her name, eventually settling on beauty when he can't get it right. She asks if he's a cannonballer, but he lies and says that he and Victor are volunteer paramedics. She starts bringing up poets and it seems like he's bullshitting her about knowing what she's talking about until she mentions a tree poem by Joyce Kilmer, who she assumes was a woman, and J.J. corrects her. Uh, He.
0: Who? He. He, says she? She's a he.
3: (laughs) Is this an actual poet? Yeah. And is is it a he? Yep.
2: Okay. (laughs) But just the fact that this character knew that made me think, okay, well, maybe he knew that other poem that she was talking about, too.
1: Well, he also tries to guess her name, and one of the names he throws out there is Melisande, uh, which is, is... I know it from 110 in the Shade, which is a musical. Yeah. Um, But it's it's actually like an old literature about uh, tragic lovers. Oh, Okay. Um. So and then he because then he he's a very literate
2: character. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Because he also references he he also suggests Juliet. Yeah. So he's Mm. picking tragic lovers. Yeah. Uh, as his uh, as his guesses.
2: She tries to tell him again how much she likes fucking under trees, but Victor comes in to interrupt with news about the doctor. JJ doesn't want to hear it right now. It'll keep. It'll keep. (laughs) We cut to Compton working on his motorcycle when his buddy Shaky shows up, heavier than he was the last time they saw each other. Compton asks for some help with the motorcycle's throttle. When Shaky's done with it, Compton can't slow the bike, and he blasts full speed through the hotel. He knocks Foyt out of a hallway through a window back into his own room. The motorcycle continues through the stained glass window walls of the cannonball pub and down the stairs into the hotel lobby. Roger Moore as Seymour Goldfarb pulls up to the hotel in a silver 1964 Aston Martin DB5 under a Bond soundalike alike score. But this is not just any 1964 Aston Martin DB5. This is the exact car used in Goldfinger where it was oh. driven by Sean Connery. It went through a series of collectors on the way to Anthony Pugliazzi III who loaned it to the production. Sadly, it was stolen from his storage facility in 1997 and has never been recovered.
3: That's insane, though. If you collect cars Mm -hmm. like and you have the car used in the bond film like why would you loan it to a production
2: yeah especially if they're gonna drive it on set with like stunt coordinators and stuff like that that's that's, crazy
3: that is totally insane
2: i mean for a photo op maybe but i'm not gonna let them drive it for sure Yeah,
1: you just insure it for a ton of money yeah i guess
3: i guess but mm, that's I, i mean i i just don't know what the benefit is that i don't know
2: yeah
1: and it's missing huh it's still still yeah somebody has it some some really rich person
2: or some guy who had no idea what it was well it.
3: or somebody who has never worked with a film crew before It's right. like even if you paid me a lot of money i would never let a film crew into my house that's
2: true <laughs> it might also appear in thunderball but i couldn't tell if it was the same car or just the same make and model he exits the car and walks with a female companion to the desk where racers are meant to sign in a young boy takes a photograph of his brother and Seymour confuses the camera flash for oppressive media attention. We get a montage of other racers in the parking lot. One guy's holding up the side of a van with brute strength while his co-driver changes a tire. We see Terry and Mel loading their car up with Budweiser. It's been painted gray, and it's now actually a different car, a 1976 Monte Carlo. Fender Bomb drags Jamie out of a circle of young women to get ready for the race. That night, the event's organizer, played by Brock Yates himself, addresses the crowd. You all are certainly the most distinguished group of highway scofflaws and degenerates ever gathered together in one place. We're going to have a lot of fun. Of course, you know, certain skeptics note that perhaps 10,000 of the nation's most elite highway patrolmen are out there waiting for us after we start. But let's think positively. Think of the fact that there is not one state in the 50 that has the death penalty for speeding, although I'm not so sure about Ohio. (laughs) The racers are instructed to take a card and punch in here at the sign-in desk to start their time, and then punch out at a second clock at the Portofino Inn in California. He mentions the record of 32 hours and 51 minutes set in 1979.
1: I, I like the way that this is handled, in that it's not like an actual race, race like, against
2: Right, cars. but it becomes like that yeah. at the end of the film. They kind of mess it up at the end.
1: I
3: was going to make that argument, which is yeah. a little funny, because nobody bothers at the end to also check in. Right. I'm like, you might not be last.
2: Like, if the people who got to the finish line first were the last cars through... Yeah. ...then it would make sense that everybody yeah. lost. But they're not. Yeah. The first car pulls up to the line, and it's not anybody that we'll see later in the film. Most of these extras are people who participated in the actual races that were invited to take part in the film. Same goes for a lot of the cars parked in the backgrounds of various shots. They're all cars that were included in races. Just before the beginning of the race, Victor lets JJ know that their doctor got sick... And he has to find another <laughs> last-minute replacement the sheik has one of his passengers punch his card and then he hops in the rolls royce to skid away fender and jamie notice jj and victor are here and they seem worried jamie tells fender that the real threat to their victory is captain chaos when he puts
0: on that mask he'll blow your goddamn doors off you understand that
1: the so this this confused me later on because it seems like uh, they don't
2: recognize them later
1: yeah like jamie blake is so familiar with jj mcclure and and victor as drivers that that he's f- intently familiar with him yeah uh but the fact that burt reynolds does not recognize him right later, and neither
2: neither does dom and neither does yeah. captain chaos team japan as they are inaccurately named drive right past the start clock without punching a card but it doesn't come up later that they're disqualified or anything Across the street, we see Foyt and Pamela in a car taking down all the license plate numbers of the Cannonballers as they leave the starting line. Jamie stops next to Jill and Marcy to poke fun at them for picking such a conspicuous racing car. Jill points out that with a top speed of 220 miles per hour, police are irrelevant to them, and yet they get pulled over more than anybody <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, right? <laughs> Terry and Mel clock in to start the race, and Budweiser cans tumble out of the car as they pull away from the line. Next up is Mad Dog and Batman, The co-drivers hype each other up before crossing the start line.
1: I I really wanted more of these guys. Yeah.
2: Because... Mad Dog is hilarious. Yeah. I love just the sound of his voice, too. Yeah.
0: We're here to win, ain't we? If you're gonna be a bear, be a (laughs) grizzly!
2: The pickup truck flies off the road and through the wilderness for what they call a shortcut to the interstate. God, Pamela, did you see that?
0: They drove right through those trees... I love trees.
1: Did I tell you We are I'm going at? right down there and bring this thing to a screeching halt right now.
2: Next, Seymour pulls up in the Aston Martin, and because his steering wheel is on the right side of the car, he can hand his punch card to the person at the desk to punch it in. We cut back to Jamie as the girl team shuts him down since the church wouldn't approve. He later complains to Fenderbomb that they should have posed as Methodist.
1: This is my favorite scene. Or one of my favorite scenes in this movie. When he's, like,
2: picking him up. He
1: picks him up, and Sammy Davis Jr. just full-on kisses him in the face. Yeah,
2: they're, like, nuzzling each other. It's really cute.
1: Yeah, like, you can tell that they are just such good friends. Yeah. It feels
3: fully improvised here, and they just use this take, and I I, I bet they never did this particular take again.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but it's it's like the relationship between Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, where you believe these two people are just best friends who would do anything for each other. Yeah.
1: he's like okay put me down
2: (laughs) (laughs) compton and shaky pull up to the start line on their motorcycle apparently they are posing as newlyweds so shaky is in a wig but he doubts that police will give newlyweds any leeway on the road fender and jamie are completely wasted as they decide who's going to drive and stumble into their car a 1977 ferrari 308 gts the girls team checks in and starts the race fender and jamie check in Another pair of drivers I don't recognize, probably real-life cannonballers, hit the road. Victor tells JJ that he found a doctor for them, and when he opens the ambulance, the crooked eyes of Jack Elam stare back at him, <laughs> with a bit of an organ sting to go with Dr. Nicholas Van Helsing's monstrous countenance. Holy shit. He announces himself as a proctologist and graduate of Rangoon University, <laughs> and assorted night classes at a Knoxville faith-healing college. J.J. asks if the good doctor brought along any equipment, and the doctor prods J.J.'s face with his middle (laughs) finger, (laughs) implying that's all he needs.
1: He just rubs it right in there.
2: (laughs) He asks for 2,000 to join them on this trip, and J.J. counters with 200, and it's a deal. (laughs) I I think Jack Elam might have made me laugh more than anybody else in this whole movie. When JJ says they're headed to California, Van Helsing starts singing California Here We Come and he seems to know all the words because he continues singing the song even as his co-drivers are arguing with each other. Obsessive listeners of the podcast will recall the last time we heard that Al Jolson classic in Patreon minisode Leo and Lori. JJ is desperately uninterested in Where Victor Found Van Helsing. Just as JJ complains that they don't have their female patient, they notice a car accident on the side of the road. It seems that the cannonballers ahead of the ambulance have caused an accident between two unrelated cars and Pamela and Foyt stand beside a wrecked car. When the ambulance pulls up, Pamela assumes they're here to help Mr. Foyt, who has been injured. JJ tells Foyt to get in through the ambulance's back door and then he yanks Pamela into the front seat over his lap. Victor pulls away from the accident before Foyt can get completely in the back. When Pamela notices, she forgets the injured man's name forgot Mr. uh Mr.
0: Foyt Foyt!
2: They tell her they're on a tight schedule and they can't circle back for Foyt she asks Victor if he can help her out of this situation and Victor says only he can help her he can. Who can? Him she sneaks into the back to ask the doctor for help but she's terrified by his face and more organ music
0: my god the perfect specimen Uh, JJ you want me to start the examination right away? (laughs) (laughs)
2: she climbs back into the front seat now they clearly left like multiple minutes after the lamborghini left yeah so at the end of the film we'll come back to this but there were there's probably 10 minutes between their starting times we cut to the japan team driving through the desert and they turn off their headlights and put on night vision
1: what i was hoping for was a gag with the night vision that an oncoming traffic would hit them with the with their bright lights and they'd just be going ah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they didn't do that we see the lambo already getting pulled over and jill and marcy unzip their jumpsuits to impress the policeman with their cleavage this particular cop is being played by Burt reynolds stand-in which explains his mustache and general resemblance as he lectures them for going 160 multiple cars pass them at 100 plus miles an hour when the cop asks for their driver's license Marcy unzips her jumpsuit more and hands it to him. After staring at their chests for a moment, the officer decides to let them go, since everyone seems to be driving crazy right now. In the back of the ambulance, Pamela is coming to terms with the fact that she's been kidnapped. Victor tries to console her by pointing out that at least they have a doctor in case someone gets swamp fever, a reference to the previous Hal Needham, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise project, where Dom played a paramedic curing a human patient with swamp fever, which I think we decided is a disease of horses. (laughs) when jj hears sirens following them he pleads with pamela to act as their patient when she is uncooperative the doctor offers a syringe to knock her out to make her feel at ease the doc explains that he gives himself shots all the time and jj <laughs> makes him prove it which he clearly doesn't want to do He's just like, <laughs> maybe not after injecting himself the doctor offers the same syringe to everyone else in the car and when they all pass he injects himself again <laughs> <laughs> When they are pulled over, J.J. and Victor explain to the police that they're headed to UCLA Medical Center with a very sick patient. When they ask why the patient isn't being flown, Victor tells them to ask the doctor, realizing too late that that's a terrible idea. Luckily, we get one of those switcheroo moments where the doctor is able to intelligently communicate a Mm -hmm. great reason that the patient needs to be driven. Specifically, he says she has cysts in her lungs and she couldn't survive at a higher elevation.
0: You see, airplanes are only pressurized at 10,000 feet. Now anybody knows anything about medicine, knows that she can't fly, she has to be driven. Or oh, we couldn't even go through Denver, it's so high.
2: In the ambulance gurney, we can see that Pamela has been administered laughing gas and can barely speak. She tells the police that she needs to circle back and get mister Foyt, but again she forgets his name and now all three of her companions remind her.
0: Tell them to go back and pick up mister
2: The cops are satisfied with the doctor's explanation, and they are excused to continue speeding at 120 miles per hour to California. As extra incentive, JJ includes the detail here that the patient is a senator's wife. Amazingly, this is based on a real encounter that the ambulance car had during the 79 cannonball run which also fooled police and got them a police escort through town.
3: I, w- I was going to say, they, yeah. they just could have taken it one step further with a police escort here. That's the whole
2: point of having a real doctor play the doctor, yeah. is that you need someone who can speak with some medical expertise. Yeah. And the guy came up with that on the fly, that she had cysts and she needed to take the southern route and they couldn't go through elevated areas.
3: Um. So I have a question about, like, I feel like, um, the scene that, that like there's a weird thing happening with Dom DeLouise's hands being held yeah, yeah i don't
2: know why that's happening okay
3: either. i was like i could not figure out what the, why that was relevant but like yeah. it was so specific because
2: it, it's like their hands are stuck together, J.J. and Victor. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: but he's holding it like, you know, like stiff as a board and then they're like holding hands and, and like moving them together. So yeah. it's very strange. And then I, I'm like, well, maybe it's just that, that take. But then when you see the outtakes at the end of the film, he's doing the same thing again. So it was like that in every take.
2: Yeah, I, I think there might be some detail of the scene that was taken out because they even have victor make like a joke like oh we're just very close that's why we're holding hands and it's like i don't understand why you are holding hands <laughs> that's not why
1: i think it's just honestly i feel like burt reynolds and dom DeLuise are just
2: they can't help it having fun they just love each other so much <laughs> as the cops pull away we hear another reynolds laugh that could easily be the one from the logo they all sound very similar <laughs> Over the course of the whole movie, we keep seeing Foyt make phone calls to someone. Not entirely clear who, but he's reporting the evils of the cannonballers, and we get a moment here where he's reporting Pamela's kidnapping. Evidently, he's at an airport making a call before catching a plane, but he's trapped in the phone booth when a van parks right up against the door. But that's not how these doors typically work. Now they usually open in? Yeah, they open into the booth and fold. Yeah. but either way he can't get the door to open but he immediately escapes by climbing under the door anyway so he's not actually trapped in there for very long
3: yeah i think part of the point of the fact that they, they like accordion in is so that you can't really trap something exactly, in that thing yeah. from the outside
2: we cut to seymour telling his female passenger roger moore's life story starting with the royal air force and later tv and film work which is as close as he gets to impersonating roger moore as opposed to james bond aside he, from
1: signing the name roger moore that's true yeah
2: <laughs> He warns her against using the cigarette lighter in the car as it's actually an ejector button. The next day, Pamela awakens in the back of the ambulance, in surprisingly good spirits considering she's just been kidnapped and drugged against her will. We get a glimpse of Compton and Shaky on their motorcycle, which is being driven in a permanent wheelie because of the heavy passenger. Fenderbaum and Jamie pull up alongside the ambulance in the red Ferrari, pretending to be priests offering a blessing to the patient. JJ is suspicious of two priests in a red Ferrari, especially when he learns one of them is black, though that wasn't remotely uncommon at the time. For some reason, they do pull over for the priests, but don't even let them bless the patient, claiming she is a Zen Buddhist.
0: Oh, we specialize in blessing Zen Buddhists.
2: Yeah. JJ invites him to bless the doctor, and then heads back to the Ferrari. But while they've been pulled over, Fenderbomb was letting the air out of one of their back tires. Before the Ferrari skids away, Fenderbomb essentially admits to being cannonballers.
0: And those priests, when weren't fathers. They were... Mothers! That. Come here. Oh, gee.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Back in Seymour's Aston Martin, he now has a new female passenger, and truckers are reaching out to him on the radio, but he doesn't understand their jargon. The voice on the radio here is Director Hal Needham again. Seymour and his lady companion enjoy some champagne. The cars enter Cleveland, and the ambulance stops to gas up. For some reason, the doctor follows Pamela into the ladies' room instead of going to the men's room i don't understand why he's doing that other than to just see her in there the wheelie cycle rolls by
1: oh and and this is like or at least online i see this this gif a lot of burt reynolds looking at the car thinking to himself and then shrugging yeah (laughs) like all right but i don't get how they beat the ferrari here
2: yeah i was gonna make that point too victor makes it back to the ambulance with arms overloaded with snacks and drinks for himself he collected a big gulp dr pepper And he sings the Dr. Pepper jingle.
0: I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper,
1: wouldn't you like to be a pepper? Will you get in here? Okay, here you go.
2: Do you guys recall the last time we referenced the I'm a Pepper campaign? No. (laughs) Short circuit? (laughs) We haven't reviewed that. Witch's Brew. Uh. A student in Richard Benjamin's classroom is wearing an I'm a Pepper shirt.
3: Oh. That, that's the reference?
2: <laughs> Somehow, despite the flat tire trick, the Ferrari pulls into the gas station after the ambulance, and JJ stops by a nearby cop. He asks how seriously they take crime in this town, and the cop points to a banner that reads, "Reelect Sean Kilikami O'Scanlon. God guns and guts keep us safe from hippie nuts. Fenderbomb calls the Greek on a payphone, and when the Japanese team spins by losing control of their car, he tries to place a bet on them not finishing the race at all.
1: Which is a good bet. Yeah. Because even if they did finish the race they're disqualified right
2: jj tells the cop that his patient is recovering from an attack by two men dressed as priests in a ferrari who've gone around flashing everyone and they may be armed the cop is excited to learn they have weapons yeah it's like damn i hope so you will give me an excuse
1: it's like man this is hitting a little too close
2: yeah it's one thing to slow the other racers down but it seems like jj's literally trying to get them killed here J.J. points to the Ferrari as it peels out of the gas station, and the cop stands right in front of it in the road, where it barely stops before taking the cop's legs out from under him. The cop orders them out of the car and tells them to hit the roof, meaning to put their hands on it, but instead they start drumming along to a non-diegetic banjo song.
1: <laughs> Freeze or name your Beneficiary?
0: Beneficiary.
2: The cop asks Shorty, a.k.a. Fenderbomb, where all his jewelry came from.
0: Why do you call me Shorty? Because you're small. <laughs> small. Uh, <SM-O>. All.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I like that his face is just like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense.
3: You got a new clip for your mini <laughs>
2: Small. S-M-O. <laughs> As they approach a roadblock, J.J. notices an empty flatbed truck and calls to him on the CB. Foyt is working with the police to identify cannonballers from their license plates, and the Aston Martin is able to change its plate with a switch in the car. The ambulance sneaks through the roadblock under a green tarp on the flatbed truck, which is technically a violation of the gentleman's agreement that the car has to drive the entire distance on its own. Victor works on the ambulance transmission while they're being transported. Inside the ambulance, Pamela and JJ have a little heart-to-heart conversation. He asks what she expected would happen after they took her, and her guess is disturbing.
1: Yeah. Gang bang or something
2: like a that. A gang bang? We're racers, not rapists. I still think he should have said, we're racers, not rapers. But it's a weird moment anyway in the film.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Better than saying we're racists, not rapists. <laughs> that doesn't
2: make sense. <laughs> Didn't you hear me earlier when I said that black people can't be priests? <laughs> she asks why they take all the risks in these races, and J.J. tells the story of his father dying before retirement and never really enjoying his life. At the roadblock, Terry and Mal are caught as racers because the new paint is peeling off of their car and he has their plates from the starting line. Surprisingly, none of these cops give a shit that they're actively chugging Budweiser's during this police stop, though. (laughs) Next, Foyt orders a pair of burly guys out of a gray van and after they walk away, Foyt puts it in neutral to push down the road, but it gets away from him, knocks a police car over an embankment, and explodes
3: this explosion it's a huge explosion it's crazy like the trees are going up
2: (laughs) some of the stunts and
1: effects that they use for this movie are pretty impressive
2: but actually it kind of makes sense because a lot of these cars were modified to hold way more gasoline than the standard issue car
1: it's just
3: bigger than i would have expected out of this movie like in terms it's not a special effect it's a legitimate explosion very
2: practical (laughs) but um the ambulance specifically I think uh, they had a tank that held like 90 gallons of gas or something like that, wow. which they basically would fill up by pulling up between four pumps and put them yeah. all in at the same time so they could fill it up faster. Yeah. Well,
1: because he says that when he pulls up to the gas station. Right. He's he, like, oh,
2: you're, you're between pumps. And he's like, oh, this one, she goes both ways or something like that.
3: Yeah. I, I it, it surprises me, and, and maybe this is the unrealistic part of the movie, how much they voluntarily stop in this movie. Yeah, it's true.
2: <laughs> The ambulance is unloaded from the flatbed. Team Japan blows past a speed trap at 125 miles per hour in the middle of the night. They get a radar warning on one of their many monitors, but fly by anyway, and the cops don't pursue. The Sheik pulls up to a restaurant to collect a phone order from a beautiful waitress. The Sheik is enamored and invites her to join his harem, tipping her with a fat stack of cash and advising her to get a physical before he comes back. In the ambulance, Pamela asks Victor what it's like having Captain Chaos in his head, But Victor insists that Chaos is outside of him, helping other people when he's not here. Chaos first showed up in elementary school when Victor had no friends. Chaos beat up all of his bullies and people left him alone after that. Pamela wishes she had a mask, a pink one since all of her clothes are pink.
0: Everything? Even, um... Oh, I don't wear any. You don't? Uh Uh-uh.
2: Pamela admits she likes Victor and would like to be friends. According to another of their monitors, Team Japan is entering New Mexico the next morning, but then they see a sign that says they're entering El Paso, meaning their computers are fucked, and we see the car spin out. The Lambo is getting pulled over a third time, evidently not making use of their top speed to avoid arrests as planned, but when they flash their cleavage for the third cop, it's an uncredited appearance from Valerie Perrine, who is unimpressed by their bounty. We cut to the Aston Martin being pursued by a police car. The Bond girl here sounds especially Russian. A familiar Russian voice, in fact, because it's June Ferre doing the voice of, <laughs> of Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle, <laughs> who so far has provided the voice of all of Seymour's passengers in the form of ADR. So oh, really? any time one of his girlfriends is talking, is June Ferre doing a different well, voice.
3: I, I noticed it in this scene in particular, yeah. but I, I didn't realize it in all the scenes.
0: <laughs> that policeman seems to want to stop, darling. Yes, he must be rather upset with our rapid rate. Funny they don't have any sense of humor about that sort of thing. Aren't you going to pull over? I'd rather not. Can't be such a bore talking to those
2: chaps. Tell you what, we'll just slip away. Hit that button, will you?
1: Like in your movies.
2: Seymour instructs his passenger to flip the oil switch, and the police car goes spinning wildly off the road. Oh
1: my god, that that is such a crazy spin. Now, I'm convinced that take. the
2: car is not actually spinning like that, that it's on some kind of a platform and there's something spinning on the it's, top I, of it.
3: It looks so fast, but yeah. it's, it do, the it's film not does not look sped up. No,
2: I, I, I think they have a very short platform with a fake police car spinning on the top of it. Huh. so that they just drive that and there's enough dust getting kicked up that it looks like the car is spinning yeah, out. but it's going so insanely fast Yeah,
1: it's like i i can't even imagine a car spinning that fast without flying apart yeah
2: i would expect the the two halves of it to just go in opposite directions suddenly the aston martin is filling with smoke and veers all over the road around oncoming traffic this is where the fateful accident occurred that left was, the stunt woman paralyzed ask. yeah in the japan team's but, car wait
3: sorry. that's the that isn't that the loner car
2: uh the the road car was not the same one as what they used for they they wouldn't use that car for stunts for sure.
3: Okay, well that okay, that makes it a little more palatable that they But still, I mean it.
2: giving but, it to other people to take care of for any amount of time is terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, if you were going to give it to them for any reason, it would be like, you need to have another James Bond drive this, and that's it. (laughs) So that way I can say, two James Bonds drove this car. I
1: can't even drive this car. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's
2: like when when I was the owner of uh, Sweet Dave's chair from Hateful Eight, I was like, I'm not even going to sit in this because it's too important. (laughs) In the Japan team car, Jackie pops a VHS of Behind the Green Door into the onboard VCR, but the picture quality is the best VHS I've ever seen. Behind the Green Door is a classic release from the golden age of porn and tells the story of a socialite kidnapped and brought to a sex club where she engages in several sex acts on stage before an audience, not unlike what Pamela thought would happen after she was kidnapped by JJ and Victor.
3: I'm sorry, what is the golden age of porn?
2: You know, Debbie Does Dallas, uh, Deep Throat, Behind the Green Door, (laughs) classic 70s (laughs) porn shot on 35mm, you know, the good stuff.
1: Jackie Treehorn stuff.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Distracted by the porn, Jackie Chan accidentally swerves around a truck and off the road until his partner wakes up and rips the tape out of the VCR. The Sheik is seen pulled over and paying his fine while accepting a ticket, but he insists that his mother is considering buying California and they will be sorry they've wasted his time. He peels out back onto the road, but the cops can't keep up this time. A motorcycle cop tries to pull over Batman and Mad Dog, so Batman tells the cop that their brakes are out to explain their speed, Unfortunately, just like at the hotel, the brakes are out, and they're approaching an occupied train track blocking the road. Batman ramps off a trailer truck and hops the train, landing safely on the other side. Somehow, Team Japan gets roped into a dune buggy race like it's a shortcut, but they get stuck on a steep dirt hill. Jackie's partner reminds him of their secret weapon, a rocket we first saw in the car's establishing shot. The car is launched high into the air.
1: Oh my god, I... That's... I mean, I'm sure that they're... they're altering the camera angle to make it right. seem like it's much higher than it really is but
2: i can't it, tell if it's a full-size car or what's going on if yeah. it's on a string from a helicopter or something but it's very impressive looking somewhere in the desert a town's roads are dug up and nearly every car in the race has been stopped while they wait for the road to clear instead of just driving around the road work it's in the middle of the desert drive mm-hmm. through the dirt You're, you've already been doing it a bunch the priests and paramedics face off to complain about the traps they set for each other jj calls Fenderbomb the chocolate monk and Jamie calls Victor the Goodyear blimp. Eventually all the competitors we're following are stuck in the same spot and Seymour's passenger complains about the heat. It's hot.
0: Oh I do not know when I was in Egypt making the uh, fly who bugged me it was at least 180 in the shade. Not that there was much shade.
2: Suddenly a whole swarm of chopper motorcycles roll into town and crowd around Compton's bike to poke fun at him. They're led by Peter Fonda and when they yank him off the bike Captain Chaos comes to the rescue followed by JJ, Seymour, Jackie Chan, and all the rest of the cannonballers. Some are more effective than others. I must warn you, I'm Roger Moore. Roger Moore. And then he punches him out and <laughs> just knocks him to the ground. A group of bikers pick up Jill and Marcy and drag them into a nearby building until Captain Chaos comes to their rescue, tossing bikers out of every window of the house. Fenderbomb is on the phone with the Greek again, trying to change his bet once more. Jamie is fending off attackers until one gets him from behind and then the biker slowly passes out and we reveal he's been injected by Dr. Van Helsing. (laughs) Is that good to drink?
0: I don't know, I never tried it.
2: He sprays a half syringe full into his mouth. (laughs) I just love the sound it's making too, it's just so great this moment. Jamie shouts to the cannonballers that the road is open and everyone flies to their cars except Team Japan because Jackie Chan wants to keep fighting. He does get some decent fighting exhibition here, It's a better show of his skills than we got in all of Battle Creek Brawl last year, and I assume that's because Hal Needham is a competent director and was like, yeah, you choreograph this scene and do a bunch of fighting. That that would be cool to have in this movie. The cars are all in a line headed to the finish, and Victor's passengers beg Captain Chaos to take the wheel. When he does, the car is suddenly able to overtake the whole line of cannonballers. They're closing in on the finish line now. Seymour's newest passenger says she's seen all of his movies.
0: Wait, I tell my friends I was sitting next to George Hamilton!
1: George i thought for sure he was gonna just hit the
2: eject her right there (laughs) yeah Yeah, that'd be great the cars pull into the harbor and are all caught in a huge pile up they end up running on foot for the last few hundred feet and everyone but chaos and marcy trip over each other in a heap just before
1: they don't trip over each other burt reynolds tackles them yeah all into into a into a heap
2: but some people who weren't involved in the tackle still collapse here just before checking in, Chaos hears a woman in need.
0: Help! Help! Somebody save my baby! He's drowning! No chaos!
2: He rushes to help the woman while Marcy checks into the finish line to steal the race from the man who, moments ago, saved her life as well. Captain Chaos saves the woman's baby, which was actually a dog that fell in the harbor. JJ is furious that Victor has thrown the race away, so is Dr. Van Helsing, and for some reason, even Pamela, the kidnapping victim, thinks the race was important enough to let that woman's dog drown.
0: <laughs> He's right, Victor. We are sick of Captain Chaos. We are so sick of Captain Chaos that we could throw up.
1: I uh, Like, he, Burt Reynolds rips off, like, the costume, and then hits him in the chest, and a big squirt of water comes out yeah. of the pocket.
2: Because the, the jumpsuits that they're wearing are, like, completely, like, water resistant yeah so his pocket is just full of water when he slaps it it just spurts up in the air victor ducks out of shot and reappears as captain usa in a star-spangled mask and cape and the whole crowd breaks into laughter like there was some kind of a joke involved in this moment and he didn't just show up in a different costume all is forgiven jj and victor hug but Foyt shows up to scold them for the race and seymour tries to appease him with the gift of a cigarette expecting him to be launched from the car when he tries the cigarette lighter When nothing happens, Seymour joins him in the car, and of course accidentally launches himself, landing safely in the harbor water. In the Bond film, the launcher was hidden under the gear shift, not the cigarette lighter. The camera slowly zooms out of the champagne-soaked celebration in the parking lot, and eventually it's a helicopter shot pulling away, and we dissolve to a patented Hal Needham blooper reel. If you'll recall, we saw the first-ever blooper reel over the credits last season for Hal Needham's Smokey and the Bandit Part 2, and this is a continuation of that tradition most of it is dom breaking into laughter and it is impossibly contagious mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. bert cannot keep a straight face and neither can i
1: i i realize that uh dom de Louise is just a big kid yeah
2: and he just seems like the sweetest fucking yeah. guy and half of the funniness is is bert just being a dick to him and yeah. slapping him around and it's like this guy doesn't deserve that stop yeah.
1: but what dom de Louise says he laughed first mr martin laughed first and it's like he he calls him mr martin yeah <laughs> it's like that's so sweet
2: yeah it's clear for the whole captain usa bit that the entire cast was very slap happy and the laugh in the scene was not fake at all they just couldn't stop laughing
3: they they had no takes without laughs yeah <laughs>
2: even in the blooper he he calls himself captain america not captain usa but then as they're like Finishing the take, Bert is like, why are you laughing? And he's like, he was laughing, so I'm laughing. And like, everyone's just cracking up the whole time. No one can explain it. The movie ends on Bert's patented laugh. And the second film has a lot of racers in common with the first movie. But the third film, as I said, Cannonball Fever, a.k.a. Speed Zone, is essentially a Canadian reboot. It has tons of SCTV folks. And only Jamie Farr returns from the first mm. two films. I love this movie. I I think this was always my favorite burt reynolds movie and my favorite dom Delawise movie as a kid other if you don't count animated dom DeLuise stuff. Oh, yeah, okay, stuff mm-hmm. um these these movies and specifically just the first Cannonball run i just remember watching this over and over again on television and laughing hysterically at it and and especially the bloopers obviously the bloopers are the funniest part of the movie but um i just love their relationship the two of them
3: this is my first viewing of it and i enjoyed it
2: yeah and i think it holds up really well i think um like, there's not, there's not a bunch of, like, terrible racist crap or, like, homophobic stuff like there usually is in these old movies. I think uh, it's pretty respectful of everybody. It's just about a bunch of people trying to get to a place.
1: Uh, I liked it. Um, I thought... I, I had never seen it before Oh, okay. This. Um, I, I thought it was going to be a little bit funnier. Yeah. Um, I, I really wanted to, to see more of the racers. Like, I, I wanted to see more of the other goings-on, like in a mad 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 world style but i know that it, like the you know keeping it with the, like a 90 minute runtime right right uh you and don't and keeping Bert and
2: dom the main characters is important
1: yeah uh because i feel bad that like the 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 ladies team was just relegated to, to getting pulled over three getting, times yeah i mean the rule of threes i mean yeah it's it a joke yeah, yeah it's basically time. just
2: a short skit with them
1: uh it was like you know, is that all we get from this and uh, Bert
2: Convy like on the motorcycle bit like He's in maybe four shots of this movie, and the yeah. rest of it is clearly just a stunt driver on a, doing a wheelie, and that's it.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, wanted more Mad Dog, and uh, I, I, I would even, uh, I would have even wanted more of Dean Martin, Sammy Davis.
2: Yeah, they're great, and and I actually really love Terry and Mel are, are hilarious in yeah, this too
1: because the the stuttering is yeah, like,
2: which is a real thing. Maltel yeah, has had that stutter.
1: Yeah, but uh, it's it's just so charming. Yeah, it is. Like I, I want more of this. Um, I just felt bad that we didn't get to see more of that.
2: Yeah. It would have been nice if they came back for the second movie and got everybody to come back. Mm-hmm. That would have been great.
1: You know, and and Jamie Farr, I mean uh I mean, we won't go into the whether or not this is a
2: semi racist uh, I, I think that, you know, I mean, he has he's of Lebanese descent. Mm-hmm which is close enough to the Arabian Peninsula that it's not like a slap in the face it's not like they they just put Peter Sellers in here (laughs) and painted him brown um but yeah it's not it's not totally authentic and he's obviously doing all the you know general uh Arab stereotype stuff but uh I didn't think any of it was like mean-spirited particularly But, yeah, I I really like this whole cast. I think everybody's really fun. I think they seemed like they were having a good time, which I think Needham is kind of famous for having a comfortable set that people enjoy working on, except for, obviously, the woman who was terribly injured. Um, But, yeah, I like this movie. I give it a thumbs up for sure.
3: Yeah, I'll I'll give it a thumbs up. I I, I guess I... (laughs) I mean, I guess I don't know what I expected. I just thought that there would be more to it than this because I had never seen it before, and it's a famous movie. Yeah, when like... I
2: when I put it on, it was ninety minutes. I was like, really? For some yeah. reason, in my head, this movie was like two hours and fifteen minutes long.
3: <laughs> yeah, but I'm just like, it's pretty pretty simple, but it's still it's still amusing.
2: Yeah. Oh, where's this going, Letterbox? Do you guys know?
3: Um, I have it pretty high because I think it's got. A lot of rewatchability and um you know it's funny. So I have it in twentieth uh, place out of eighty two. Yeah. It is below the fan and above the nesting.
2: Okay.
1: Uh I have it at sixteen. Okay. Uh so puts it was below Outland but above Clash of the Titans.
2: I actually have it at twenty five, uh, which oh. is just under <laughs> Knight Riders. <laughs> and,
3: you, love <laughs> you love it the most. I, I do think I, I like
2: this this is this is a problem that we have a lot i love it the most i love everything down to number 60 on my list that's the problem is that i love all of these movies but it's it's under night riders and it's above caveman oh, funny. but i did like it the most out of the three of us and i did rank it the lowest from what we've seen
3: <laughs> you just have low standards i mean what's say it say about me
2: <laughs> it says you're great according to my standards <laughs> Our director here was Hal Needham. He plays the Ambulance EMT, uncredited. He worked for a long time as a stuntman, and he worked with Burt Reynolds at the top of his game for his most profitable films, namely the Smokey and the Bandit and the Cannonball movies. He also wrote and directed Megaforce. He served as the inspiration for Brad Pitt's character in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, with DiCaprio basically playing the Burt Reynolds part, though he seems to be an amalgamation of several actors. Writer Brock Yates. He was also the organizer of the original Contest. He wrote Smokey and the Bandit 2 for us last season. Producer Raymond Chow is a famous Hong Kong producer responsible for many of Bruce Lee's biggest titles, as well as a lot of Jackie Chan's early movies. The music here came from Al Capps, who also scored Sasquatch, The Legend of Bigfoot, Stroker Ace, and the second Cannonball movie. Cinematographer Michael C. Butler was the DP for Charlie Varick, Harry and Tonto, A Small Circle of Friends, and Megaforce. Editor Don Camburn Also cut Smokey and the Bandit 2, Willie and Phil, Excalibur, so far for us. He's back to cut Romancing the Stone, Harry and the Hendersons, and Ghostbusters 2, among many others. The second editor was William D. Gordine, who edited Smokey and the Bandit 2 also, Cannonball Run 2, Stroker Ace, The Great Outdoors, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 3, also for Golden Harvest, I believe. Burt Reynolds played J.J. McClure. He was the biggest actor in the world at the time and a regular co-star of Dom DeLuise's, including in the animated All Dogs Go to Heaven. He's in the Smokies and Bandits. He's in the Cannonballs. He's in both Longest Yards. He's in Deliverance. One of his last incredible roles was as Jack Horner in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, and we just lost him in 2018. He was paid $5 million for four weeks' work on this film. Raymond Chow offered the big paycheck in exchange for getting Jackie Chan cast in it with him. Roger Moore played Seymour Goldfarb after the production he sued Golden Harvest for delinquency and paying his $134,000 share of the film's net profits, which is why you always go for gross. You don't go for net. These movies don't turn a profit on purpose. Needham, like Spielberg before him, touched base with The Broccolis about directing a Bond film, but they apparently took this film quite personally and threatened to sue instead. The second film features recurring Bond character Richard Keel as Jackie Chan's co-driver. Farrah Fawcett played Pamela. We saw her last year in Saturn 3. She's probably best known for her work on Charlie's Angels or in Logan's Run. For her role in this film, she was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Supporting Actress, but lost to Diana Scarwood in Mommy Dearest.
3: What was There was nothing particularly bad about this. No, I, d-
2: I don't think she had a lot to do, but I think she was gorgeous for the whole movie, and I think she worked... Like, she seemed to have legitimate, real relationships with yeah. Victor and JJ. I think she did fine. I think they're just jerks over there. Dom DeLuise played Victor Prinzum, or Victor Prinzy, depending on where you look. The character name came from a college football teammate of Burt's. We've seen Dom in a lot on the show, but this is my favorite so far for the podcast, because all the other bits were, like tiny cameos i think the funniest thing that we saw from him was uh the last married couple in america where he was like the porn star friend of george Segal's.
1: yeah because he was like i remember you in high school you're gonna be a star
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah he appears with burt reynolds in a bunch of films and he appears in three or four don bluth movies because i think he's in both all dogs go to heaven right uh, but burt d- didn't come back
1: yeah i don't know if he's in both but he's definitely with burt in the first in, one in the first one yeah um, and, you know, and Secret of Nim for sure. Right, and, and he's, Fievel. He's the mm-hmm.
2: cat in yeah. Five and Five and goes west. But yeah, he's great. Dean Martin played Jamie Blake. He came back for the second film and these two would be his final feature film roles. He's obviously a comedian, singer, member of the Rat Pack with Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr. played Fender Bomb Don Rickles was originally cast as Fender Bomb before the part went to Sammy Davis Jr. Rickles dropped out because he refused to be billed below Dom DeLuise because he was like, I do all these big shows in Las Vegas. Who's this guy? Why is he getting put above me? It's like because he's the main character of the movie. Don Rickles. Yeah. Also, I love Don Rickles, but this is a huge step up to getting Sammy Davis Jr. in here because Sammy yeah. Davis Jr. is so cute and charming and just hilarious. And
1: and, and the him the, again, the relationship between him and Dean, in it's this beautiful, movie is wonderful. Yeah,
2: and I mean, I can see how Don Rickles and and Dean Martin would have been really funny together, but it would have just been like, you know, a jerk and a, and a goofball instead of being two goofballs, which is always more fun. Sinatra was offended not to be included in the film, and was offered a part in the second installment, but they didn't think they could even get him for the first one, so they didn't bother reaching out.
1: Yeah, like, I I would, like, if I got Dean Martin and Sammy Davis, I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm like, counting my blessings here. Yeah,
2: exactly, And, and apparently even when they had him for the second movie they were like okay we got to tread lightly around him but sinatra was the first one on set extremely professional like you know all, all the stuff you hear about the people who work the longest in the industry that they they know what they're doing and they're respectful of others and stuff uh, we last mentioned sammy davis when he campaigned for the role of bill the candy shop owner and Willy wonka and the chocolate factory and he again returns in the second film jack elam played dr nicholas van helsing he worked as an accountant of samuel Goldwyn in hollywood until his doctor told him that he would ruin his eyes doing auditing with his distinctive misaligned eye, and so he transitioned into acting. He became a well-known character actor, appearing in many classic westerns like Once Upon a Time in the West, High Noon, and Support Your Local Sheriff. We saw him last year in our Patreon review of Dirty Dingus McGee. Adrian Barbeau played Marcy. Technically, we never hear their character names in the movie, but the female team are named in the credits, and they are recast in the second film. We saw her in Carpenter's The Fog last year, and she's back for Carpenter's Escape from New York right around the corner of the season. She was married to director John Carpenter at the time and shows up in voice only next season in Carpenter's The Thing.
1: I just saw her out of nowhere in the Cowboy Bebop reboot.
2: Oh, is she in there? Uh, I don't know why I said that in a very
1: Canadian way. Uh, (laughs) I'm not Canadian. Um, Reboot. Are you? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it it was my dad who caught it. He's like, is that, is that Adrienne Barbeau? I was like, I don't think so. Why would she be in this show?
2: <laughs> <laughs> is, she, is she on there? Yeah, she's in there. That's crazy. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, she's also in Creep Show, and she was in the Swamp Thing movie. Terry Bradshaw plays Terry. Uh, Needham and producer Albert Ruddy were such fans of the chemistry between Terry and Mel that they pitched a spinoff pilot with the same characters to ABC. The network head was equally enamored with the pitch, and the project was scrapped when the same network head was fired shortly thereafter. It's possible the pilot was released as a TV movie called Stalkers, S-T-O-C-K-E-R-S, since one exists, at least on IMDb, starring Terry as J.J. Spangler and Mel Tillis as Curtis Whitlock, directed by Hal Needham, and described like so. Two stock car racers zip across America trying to outwit and outrun a bill collector named Crusher, which sounds like basically a transcontinental Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. He's an NFL player and commentator. We saw him as himself in the previous needham reynolds Delouise collaboration Smokey and the Bandit 2 when they like drive onto, onto the, the football, football field, field and then he tells one of his teammates to tackle the car that uh, Jackie Gleason's driving and he flips it over. He also shows up as Colonel March in an episode of Briscoe County Jr. I don't remember that, but I need to rewatch the County series. Colonel March,
1: yeah. I, I don't remember that one.
2: Jackie Chan played Subaru driver number one. This is only his second American film appearance after Battle Creek Brawl last year.
1: And it's weird that he's credited as Super Driver No. 1 when they introduce him as Jackie Chan. Yeah, they call the him Japan. Jackie Chan. On yeah. the,
2: so he is playing himself, but a Japanese version of himself somehow. He was such a fan of Needham's habit of including bloopers under the credits that he followed the example with all of his later American releases, including his bloopers and stunts gone wrong during the credits. He got that from oh, Hal Needham. Oh,
3: that's so great. Isn't that I awesome? I loved those parts of his movie because when he screws up the stunts and he just laughs at himself, they're the best. But
2: I also feel like watching those the stunts gone wrong moments made me realize what a fucking badass he is when he's like falling off of a speeding train and you're like what that was real or he was actually hanging from that helicopter
3: and you're like you Mm -hmm. miss
2: (laughs) it's terrifying sometimes and you and there's a bunch of them where he like breaks bones in the bloopers and it's like god (laughs) damn jackie give it a break
3: no don't don't break give it a break don't give it a break
2: break a leg but don't break your legs jackie chan and his co-driver michael hui appeared together again in 2006's rob b hood He's the lead character of Police Story. He's in the Rush Hour series, Super Cop. He's a voice in Kung Fu Panda. He's in Drunken Master, Rumble in the Bronx. I really like everything that he does, yeah. pretty yeah. much. Burt Convy played Brad, Bradford Compton. This was his final feature film. Last season, he was Walter Reeves in Hero at Large. At the time, he was the host of Tattletail's Super Password and Win, Loser, Draw. He was a regular TV game show host. Jamie Farr played The Sheik. He's the only character to show up in all three films of this series. He was Klinger on M.A.S.H., We saw him last as himself, a guest judge of the gong show in the gong show movie, and he's also Jacob Marley in the IBC production of Scrooge.
0: (laughs) Starring Buddy Hackett, Jamie Farr, the Solid Gold Dancers, and Mary Lou Retton as Tiny Tim.
2: (laughs) Don't miss Charles Dickens' immortal classic Scrooge. Your life might just depend on it.
1: America's favorite old fart.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Peter Fonda played Chief Biker. His appearance in the film is a clear reference to his most famous role in 1969's Easy Rider. He's the son of Henry Fonda, brother of Jane Fonda. He's Chuck Browning in Future World. He's Yuli Jackson in Yuli's Gold. He's also Mephistopheles in the first Nick Cage Ghost Rider. George Firth played A.F. Foyt. This character's name was a reference to NASCAR legend Anthony Joseph Foyt Jr., Firth played Van Johnson in Blazing Saddles, Timon in The Man With Two Brains, and Woodcock in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Michael Hui played Subaru Driver number no. 2. He played Wong Yuk Si in Private Eyes last year with Tim Conway and Don Knotts, who show up as a pair of highway patrol officers in the second film. He is widely considered one of the foremost comedians in the Hong Kong film industry. Bianca Jagger played the Sheik's sister. We saw her as Corinne the sex tutor in our Minnesota review of the American Success Company last year. She's also Velma in Chud 2, Bud the Chud, and she was divorcing Mick Jagger during the production of this film. Molly Picone played Mom Goldfarb. She was Yenti in Fiddler on the Roof. Before that, she was in 1936's Yiddle with a Fiddle, so probably the two biggest Jewish fiddle flicks. She returns as this character in *Cannibal Run 2, and she was born in 1898. Isn't that interesting? Maybe not. Jimmy the Greek Snyder played the Greek himself in this film. He was a legendary odds maker and childhood friend of Dean Martin's. He was also an NFL commentator until he said a bunch of racist shit about black people and got fired, which made this exchange with Sammy Davis Jr. that much more uncomfortable to hear.
0: It takes brilliance and years of hard work. And you wouldn't understand any part of that. Do me a favor. A race is a race, right?
2: Mel Tillis played Mel. He's back for the second film. He also played himself in Every Which Way But Loose. He has lots of soundtrack credits, mostly as the writer-performer of Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. Oh, Ruby, don't take your love to town. And supposedly his stutter didn't show up in his singing. Right. Which is a tool they use to help people with stutters. I remember in the King's Speech, he's advised to sing songs to help him avoid stuttering. Rick Aviles played Mad Dog. This was his first feature. He also plays Kiskeya in Carlito's Way and Willie Lopez in Ghost. Warren Berlinger played Shaky Finch. He was Morgan in The Long Goodbye and Stu Percy in The World According to Garp. Tara Buckman played Jill. She's a ride attendant in Roller Coaster. She played Brandy on Sheriff Lobo. She's the mother, Ellie, in the first Silent Night, Deadly Night, and later Dr. Julie Casserly in Extro 2, The Second Encounter. John Fiedler played the desk clerk at the hotel. We saw him last year in Midnight Madness. He does the voice of Piglet. He's also juror number two in 12 Angry Men and Lawyer Daggett in True Grit. Joe Klecko played Polish racing driver. I think that's the guy who's lifting the car by one corner while the guy changes the tire. He was in the NFL also, and we saw him in Smokey and the Bandit 2 when they tricked Sheriff Justice into honking at his semi-truck while they were waiting for a raised bridge to close. Grace Spence played chairperson. I think that's a member of the Friends of Nature. Yeah. Coincidentally, she also played a salesperson in the other Coast to Coast movie, Coast to Coast, (laughs) probably the lady who tells Diane Cannon that she'll have to buy the dress she just chopped up.
0: Lady, you just bought yourself a dress.
2: Johnny Yoon plays TV talk show host. He's Bruce in They Call Me Bruce and They Still Call Me Bruce, a pair of martial arts action comedies. Lois Hamilton played Seymour's girl. She's the only one with other credits, but there were three other credited Seymour's girls. She's back as Stillman, John Larroquette's girlfriend, a few movies from now in Stripes. She's also Vicky in Summer Rental, and she's voiced by June Foray. Roy Tatum played Connecticut Patrolman. He played Woodrow Bowser and Norma Ray in 1979. Dudley Remus played New Jersey Patrolman. He was a gas station attendant in Smokey and the Bandit 2 last season. Hal Carter played New Jersey Patrolman Number 2. He was another gas station attendant in Smokey and the Bandit last season. Kathleen M. Shea played Starting Girl. That's the woman at the desk as they're checking in their cards. She was an associate producer on Stroker Ace and then connected with Michael Mann, associate producing Miami Vice, and has producer credits on Heat, The Insider, and Ali. John Magna played Arthur Rose. He was Dill Harris in To Kill a Mockingbird. He's also young Hyman Roth in Godfather Part 2. We just saw him in Smokey and the Bandit II with a lot of the cast and crew from this film. Valerie Perrine played the female cop pulling over the Lambo girls. We saw her last year in Can't Stop the Music. She's obviously back next week for our next film, Superman 2, as Eve Teskmacher.
1: Miss Teskmacher!
2: I think that's everything for the Cannonball Run. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about our Patreon campaign. $5 patrons get a shout-out on the show, a monthly 70s review, and a hand in choosing each month's film. Joining now unlocks 24 full-size 70s reviews and 24 minisodes. And for February of 1972, $5 patrons are choosing between the following three titles. I know, three is light, but they don't put a lot of movies in February. Especially not in the early 70s, they didn't. Cabaret, Bob Fosse's musical drama set in the Weimar Republic of the early 1930s during the Nazi rise to power, starring Liza Minnelli, Michael York, and Joel Grey. Godzilla vs. Hedorah, a Japanese kaiju film pitting Godzilla against a giant sludge monster named Hedorah. And Pocket Money, Stuart Rosenberg's western buddy comedy written by Terence Malick and starring paul newman and lee marvin with supporting roles from strother martin and hector elizondo each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this february what's that sound
0: We got one!
2: that's right it's a new patron jason aola as a five dollar patron of the show jason now has access to 24 full-size 70s reviews and 24 minisodes from 1980. thanks so much jason for making the show possible and thank you all for listening I hope you'll join us next week when we'll be discussing Superman 2, which IMDb describes like so. Superman agrees to sacrifice his powers to start a relationship with Lois Lane, unaware that three Kryptonian criminals he inadvertently released are conquering Earth. We leave you now with a trailer for Superman 2. Superman 2.
0: The adventure continues with the three villains from Krypton. Each one with the same powers as Superman. Each one dedicated to violence against mankind. Think of it. Three super villains. Hmm. Or four if you count him twice. The adventure continues in Paris with Lois Lane.
1: I believe this is your floor.
0: And the romance continues. The adventure continues in Washington. The world is on the brink of destruction. Superman, can you hear me? And Metropolis is in ruins. Is there no one on this planet to even challenge me? Superman!
2: General, would you care to step outside? Ah.
0: Revenge!
1: Revenge! Revenge!
0: Revenge! <laughs> now we're cooking, huh? One's just as strong as Superman. If you've only seen the first part, you haven't seen the best part. The adventure continues in Superman 2.